0: the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. And that's where we're going to stay for now. I don't know what you were like as a kid, but when I was a kid, there were things that scared me. There were things that terrified me, and usually those things happened at night. Now, I was um, a more or less, well, I was, I was not an only child, but my sister was significantly older. She was 11 years older than what I was, and so I had my own bedroom, and my sister and I, we, we shared our bedrooms upstairs with my grandma and grandpa. Grandma passed away when I was two years old, and so my grandpa was a bachelor. He lived in the upstairs in the second story of our house, which was a four-story um, uh, brownstone or apartment building or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and my sister and I were banished to the upstairs, and Mom and Dad slept downstairs, on the main floor. But often I would I would hear things at night, and I would see uh, the traffic would be going by on the street, and and there would be we was in the city, and so there would be sirens, and and you know as cars turned a corner, and and then the, the trees would be big chestnut trees would be waving in the wind, and 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 the scary branches and shadows and, and stuff on the ceilings, and I would get afraid. And so I'd get out of my bed and I'd go trottling over to my sister's room which was down the hall and, and in another room and I'd, I'd crawl into bed with her and my sister, uh, she was warm, <laughs> which was nice, and, and she would wrap her arms around me and, and she would tell me things like, you know, it's okay, it's just, you know, it's outside, it's not going to hurt you and all the rest of that kind of stuff. What made things better for me was having somebody around who was bigger than I was and who knew more stuff. Then as I grew older, other things scared me. There were people who were bigger than I was who would threaten me. And these people had the power to hurt me and yeah, some of them did. And then there are the things that scare people today. There are things that are bigger than we are. I was glad to have someone who was bigger than I was around. But there are things that are bigger than I am that scare me. Things that we are powerless to stop. There are people who are bullies. This morning I came out of my house and I got into my truck and I saw the outside mirror of my truck had, had been folded into into the driver's window and no damage was done. But you know, like what goes on at night? I got home at nine o'clock last night, and between then and when I got up at six or when I got out at six this morning, somebody had walked my truck and nudged it. Like, I don't know what's going on there things I'm powerless to stop. There are storms and earthquakes. There are vehicles and equipment that can hurt us in no time at all. And there is the unknown of accident and disease. And then there was that call that we got last Sunday when our daughter says to us, mom, dad, I don't know what to do. I can't wake up my daughter. Uh, she's delirious, she's out of it. What, what do I do? And, and we said, well, take her to the hospital. And and she said, well, then I've got to sit there for a couple hours, and the next thing we know is that she sends me a text message and says she's being ambulanced to Saskatoon, and and, and here's what's going on. And so what can we do as parents? It scares us as grandparents, and and we're sitting here at home, and we're wondering what's going on, and, and Kathy says, should we call the prayer chain? And I said, yeah, and so there it is. And what scares us in these situations is the feeling of being out of control. What scares us is the fact that our fate or our well-being is in the hands of someone or something else. And that someone or something else has the power to hurt and destroy us. So what do you deal? How do you deal with that? And I know it's a Sunday school answer, and I know it's a churchy answer, but the reality is that Jesus helps us to face the terrors of night and even the terrors of day. But somehow it seems like at night that these things seem worse. They seem bigger. And Jesus helps us face the terrors of life, the terrors of the unknown. And there are some facts in this story that will help us recognize that Jesus can help us to face the terror of the unknown. One of those facts is uh, there's a storm. Storms happen. Now, it's not a particularly vicious storm where things are out of control, but it's a storm. The disciples had been on a practicum. They'd been called by Jesus. They'd watched some of his miracles. They had sat under his teaching... And then Jesus sent them out, and you read the story in the earlier part of Mark chapter 6. Jesus sent them out to do ministry. And they came back. They went out and and preached, verse 12. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. And then verse 30 says the apostles gathered around Jesus... And reported to him all they had done and taught. They came back and they said, Do you know what happened? Look at this. Here's all this stuff we were able to do. Wow. And they were excited, but they were also fatigued. In fact, the Bible says because so many people were coming and going, that they did not even have a chance to eat. He said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. And 5,000 men followed him. And and then they had to go through all this feeding. And they saw this other awesome miracle. Five little loaves. And they're not nice big loaves like you go to the family bakery and buy here. They're those flat little pita things. And and, and Jesus broke them up and fed 5,000 people. and, And other gospels say besides women and children. 12 baskets left over. And they say, wow. And so then Jesus gives them their next assignment. The Bible says immediately, verse 45, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. So you start asking yourself, well, why would Jesus do that? He made them get into the boat and go over to the other side. Why? Why? And so you start reading the books and you say, well, um, maybe Jesus wanted to be alone to pray because that's what he went to do. And it was kind of a crisis situation. And the crisis situation that was here, if you read the same story in the Gospel of John, uh, you, you see that people wanted to crown him king because they thought he was the Messiah. And so maybe Jesus needed to pray about that. Or maybe he thought, well, let's get the disciples out of here. Those boys need some rest, and they didn't get any. Uh, Let's make sure they get some rest. Or maybe Jesus said, if I get the disciples out of here, maybe this Messiah thing will kind of die down. And those are all good reasons why Jesus would make his disciples to get on out of there. But here's my thinking. I I read that stuff, and, and, and I think, yeah, but why did he? Why would he send the disciples into this situation knowing that they were going to run into grief? And I thought, okay, there could be two reasons for that. One is Jesus thought it would be really funny to scare the living daylights out of them. Or two, he's got another lesson for them in the school of discipleship. And I don't think Jesus is malevolent or malicious. And I don't think he's a practical joker. So that first option really doesn't cut it. So my thinking is, you know, Jesus knew what was going to happen. He had, there was something that those boys needed to learn. There was a lesson he had to teach them, and they weren't going to like it. And so he made them get into this boat and go, ahead of, go on ahead of him to the other side of the lake. Now here's you and me. We're here some 2,000 years later, and we're thinking, okay, so how does this apply to us? You know, I think as Christians, we labor under a common misconception, and that's a misconception that has taught us right from the beginning, from the time we were kids. And the conception is this. If you do wrong, you get into trouble, right? You know, when you're a kid, when you do something wrong, you get into trouble. I remember my mother was visiting one time, and we had just gotten this little dog, and the dog did something bad, and and, and got reamed out for it. And my mom said, in Dutch, to the dog, "Sparky, als je stout bent, and krijg je een je. which means, "You're such a good no." It it, <laughs> it means if you're naughty, you're going to get reamed out, and and that's the lesson we're taught as kids: when you get out of line, you get corrected, you get rebuked. You get spanked, you get something or another, but when you do wrong, you get in trouble. And if you do well and you do good things, you get rewarded, right? Because if you do well in school, you're going to get good grades. You're going to get the sticker on the chart and all the rest. You don't get letters sent home by your teacher. And, and, you know, I've got a grandson that has every once in a while he gets a letter and he has to give it to his mom and dad, and oh no, here comes another one of those things. But if you do good, you don't get that kind of stuff, and you get rewarded. If you do good uh, at work, you get paid and you get a bonus, unless you work for, uh, who is it, um, these companies that, oh, General Motors and all these places that lost all these money, and then the people still got bonuses. You know. But generally, you get, you get a bonus because you did good. Or you get praised in your community, or you get praised in your church, or you get recognized in the newspaper. This person put all these volunteer hours in. So when you do wrong, you get get punished or disciplined. When you do right, you get rewarded. And so our thinking, that that transfers into our thinking about Christianity. And it says, and, and the thinking goes like this, then, okay, so if I submit to the Lord... And if I obey him, if I do what God wants me to do or what Christ wants me to do, then he's going to pat me on the head and say, what a good boy I am. And things are going to go well. I'm going to get rewarded. But on the other hand, if I don't get rewarded, I must have done something bad to deserve this. Right? Because that's what we're taught from the time we're little kids. We're taught that you do something bad. bad things are going to happen to you, bad things are happening to you, it's probably because you've done something bad, and that was the thinking of Job's friends in, in, in the book of Job when they came to him, and they said, well, dipstick, if you wouldn't have done all these bad things, then all these bad things wouldn't happen to you, and Job kept saying, no, I did nothing to deserve this. And so you ask yourself this question, now, Why would a God or a savior who is good, why would a savior who loves us, who is committed to taking care of us, who calls himself the covenant keeping God, why would he not only allow us to go through hard times, but sometimes deliberately design hard times into our lives? Why would someone who is good allow that or design that to happen in my life? Kathy and I are praying right now for one of our cousin's children. Young couple who is uh, the husband. um, Father is just a little bit older. And then our daughter, Sandy, he and his wife just had a little baby. The baby had seven days old, just had open heart surgery. Sick Kids Hospital in Toronto, probably the best place in the country they can be. And the baby's not out of the woods yet. Like, why would a God who is good allow those kinds of things to happen in the life of someone who is seven days old? You know, and you think, well, that child hasn't done anything, and maybe the... Parents have done something bad, but you you can't put a finger on that. And the verse that I keep butting my head against, and and it's not that I rebel against this, but it's it's a verse that is there, and it's James chapter 1, verses 2 and 4. Now, the reason that's coming up slowly is because we got a new computer there yesterday, and we haven't worked all the hiccups out of it yet, so um, we're working on it. Uh, it'll, it'll get better. But this verse in James chapter 1 and verses 2 through 4 is absolutely astounding. And James says, consider it pure joy. And that's the part I struggle with. Consider it pure joy, my brother, whenever, when you encounter trials or whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. When you go to temper a piece of metal, if you want to make a weapon, a sword, or a knife or something, you take metal and you soften it so that you can work it, or you make a tool. You soften it so that you can work it. You use heat in order to do that. But then afterwards, you have to do something called tempering. And tempering, you have to heat it to the right color, and then you have to quench it and you might go through that process several times and you may quench it in water. You may quench it in water or in oil, but it's a tempering process that makes that tool usable and hard because if you don't harden it, that tool is absolutely useless to you. And God works the same process in our lives because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance and you get to the point where you say, Lord, I think I've got enough, I don't need any more. And then it goes on to say, and perseverance must finish its work. Why? So that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. So perseverance needs to go on, and the, the step, the the, the the road to maturity travels through the valley of hard times. And Jesus made the disciples get into the boat, knowing that they would face a time of testing. Did Jesus know that the disciples would be facing a tough wind? Did he know that he was going to walk out to them on the water and scare the living daylights out of them? And this was the time when Peter walked on the water. Did Jesus set them up for a lesson? And the answer to that question in Saskatchewan words is, you bet. He set them up for a lesson. Storms not only happen, But our loving and covenant-keeping Savior and friend may deliberately design the hard times of our lives. So storms happen. And then the storms of life cause us a lot of distress. And on the Lake of Galilee, the disciples were straining at the oars, probably working really hard and not making a lot of progress. Matthew says they were buffeted by the waves, and John says the waters grew rough probably wasn't unusual for the three guys who were fishermen, but maybe for the tax collector and the political rebel um, and and some of these other people, they would have been scary times, frustrating. And you and me, sometimes we keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, and you ask yourself, what am I doing here? Why am I having to go through this? What have I done to deserve this? Or you tell yourself, I deserve better. You wind up saying to yourself, no matter how hard I try, I wind up going backwards. There's much, not much point in going on beyond here. And I'm tired of struggling and I want to give up. The storms of life cause us distress. And sometimes God's intentions wind up scaring us. And so Jesus comes out to them walking on the water. What was he doing walking on the water anyway? You ever think of that? I mean, who would expect that? Didn't he know that it would scare him? Who would ever done that before? What was he trying to prove? Was this about him? Was he trying to prove that he could do it? Or was this about them, a lesson that they needed to learn? He saw them straining at the oars. The Bible says he was up on a mountain. He saw them straining at the oars even though it was dark. Psalm 139, even if the darkness surround me, the darkness isn't isn't dark to you, Lord. But, Couldn't he have done some God thing and and just kind of said poof and and calmed the waves from there? He didn't have to go out to them walking on the boat or walking on the water and scaring the living daylights out of them. and, And and he saw them struggling and he let them struggle. It really wasn't very funny. And what's this like in Mark it says he was about to pass them by? What's that all about? Like, was he really just gonna walk by him and 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 let him go? And I, I don't have an answer for that one. I looked in some books and they don't have an, they're guessing, but nobody really knows. Where did that come from? And how did Mark get that information? Mark wasn't one of the disciples, he just hung around with them. He got the information afterwards. How did Mark know that Jesus was about to pass them by? And what about you and me? It's the unknown that scares us. You know, when our Charlotte went to the hospital. What does that mean? I don't know. What's going to happen? And so we heard the word, they think it's meningitis. And so Kathy and I are on the computer on the internet. What is meningitis? How does it work? And what are, the, what are the effects? And how long does it last? And what's the potential of trouble? And all the rest of this. And, and, and wow! And, and stuff you don't want to know. And you start getting worried. And you start getting scared. It's the unknown that scares us. You know, none of us knows what tomorrow was going to bring. The world economy is a very volatile at this point. The financial future of many people is most uncertain. Health is precarious. Jobs are shaky. World peace is an issue. And yeah, the future is a little precarious. Now, you can be ignorant and say, well, I don't know and I don't care and I'm just going to go through life. But on the other hand, you can't isolate yourself from the realities that are all around you. And sometimes God's intentions scare us because we don't know what they are. We know that God is committed to take care of us, but sometimes we're not too sure about his methods and his intentions. He doesn't always tell us what he's planning on doing, and we rarely see beyond the next step. In fact, lots of times we don't even know what the next step is going to be. And yet, the truth is that Jesus' presence helps us to carry on with what he has given us to do. And in Galilee, the disciples thought they saw a ghost. How would they know? I wonder how many ghosts they had seen. They just knew there was something big and scary out there. And yes, there was and is the reality of the demonic and the spirit world. There is the matter of power and malevolence. There is someone out there who is bigger than you and I are. Someone who is bigger and stronger. Someone who wants to do us harm. And we need to be careful that we don't minimize the power and the intent of the evil one. And and we've got this season of Halloween coming up. And I don't know when that turned from a day into a season. But I don't like it. This celebration of evil bothers me. Bothers me a great deal because there's an awesome reality behind there that people make very light of. But so Jesus comes to his disciples, scares the living daylights out of them. And then he speaks to them, and he says to them these words, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. And those words we hear in Scripture over and over and over again. Take courage, don't be afraid, it is I. And the words that are translated, it is I, are the words basically that mean I am. Now, it can simply mean it is I, like Jesus said. Or it, can, or it can mean, I am. And I am is the name of God Almighty. I am who I am. It's the words that Jesus used when when he declared himself to be not only the Son of God, but God himself. Both a simple declaration or simple reassurance of his presence and the declaration of deity. He climbed into the boat, the Bible says, and the wind died down. And the disciples were completely amazed because... Their hearts were hardened. They were closed. They just didn't understand. And you think, if those guys don't understand, then how can we? I mean, they were with them. They were there. If they didn't get it, how can we get it? Well, we have the privilege of hindsight. We have the scriptures, and we can think about this. But sometimes the presence of God frightens us. I don't know how many of you have read the Chronicles of Narnia, but Aslan the lion is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. He can be very scary at times, and very comforting at others. The reality is, like the song says, that Jesus knows all about our struggles. He cares for us, he knows how we are made, he loves us, and his words are still true for you today. Take courage, don't be afraid, It is I. And his presence goes with us. His presence is there. Not just someone who is there, but someone who is bigger, who is stronger than I am. The problem is not with him, and it is with us. What is the antidote to fear? If you have a coin, and on one side it says fear, what is the other side? What is the opposite of fear? Trust. Is it not trust and the presence of someone who is greater than the threat? When I was afraid at night when I was a kid, I would wander over to my sister's bedroom and crawl in bed with her. She would hold me. She would give me words of comfort. You know what I did? Guess. I went to sleep. Why? She's bigger than I was. She's older. She knew more stuff and I could trust her, and I could relax. When I was older, it was the friendship and protection of another student, a grade higher than I was. There were, you know, when you're in grade 10, and, and, and the grade 12s are pretty big and scary, and yet there was another grade 12 who kind of adopted me as his little buddy, and he and I both rode motorcycles, and, uh, and he said to the other kids, like, he's with me. Yeah, I'm with him. <laughs> cool. And yes, there are things that frighten us. Some of those things are real, and they're really scary. But there's always the watchfulness and the presence of the Savior. Now, listen closely. He doesn't always rescue us, but He always brings us home to our final destination. It may not turn out the way that you want. It may not turn out that you like, but He has our our best intentions, and our preservation at his heart. And the answer to fear is to trust, which is really easy to say when your life is not coming unglued. But when your life is unglued, and it's in the midst of struggle, that's where trust really, the rubber of trust really hits the road of life. Our our cousin, whose little baby is, is seven days old, having this heart surgery, having all these struggles, Posted on Facebook the other day, please pray for my son, but please pray for his dad as well. You know what? And In those times, we need to learn to trust. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you are ultimately and totally trustworthy. Lord, life comes unglued around us. We don't really know, and then you come to us and sometimes scare the living daylights out of us. And yet your words ring so true. Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. So, Lord, help us not to fear. Help us to trust and to walk from this place in confidence and victory, knowing that you care, knowing that you're bigger and better and stronger than anything or anyone around us. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.